Hey, what's up everyone? It is Pastor Marcus here from the storychurchproject.com. Welcome to the Story Church Project podcast where our focus is how to redesign the local Adventist church to tell its story loud to a culture that is no longer listening. I hope that you're blessed by what you hear and that it inspires you to make a difference in your local church today. Hey everyone, it's Marcus here. I want to welcome you back to the Story Church Podcast. Today I'm going to talk about a very interesting question. Um, It's kind of long overdue, at least in in my feelings. And that is, um, should Adventist local churches be involved in social justice? And, you know, some of you might be thinking, yes. Some of you might be thinking, I don't know. And some of you might be thinking, what in the world is social justice? So for all of those questions, I am joined today by uh, the book editor at Science Publishing uh, and author of many different books, which he will share about later, uh, Nathan Brown. Nathan, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, how you doing, Marcus? I'm doing great, man. How are you? Yeah, doing pretty well. So Nathan, I want you to, I want to begin this interview because we're going to, we're going to touch on this a really like relevant and important topic. Um, but before we dive into that, I want you to tell us a little bit about the legend of Nathan Brown. Uh, the legend's pretty short, but you know I'm getting older, so the list gets longer. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, I have the privilege of working at Science Publishing, uh, which is the Adventist Church's publishing house in Australia and the South Pacific. Uh, have worked here as a magazine editor, uh, writer, and currently my job title says book editor. Uh, yep. So I have the kind of I am the book editing editing department. Of this, um, of this fine establishment, and so uh, work with authors, work with people who sell books, and everywhere in between, from going from a good idea to a published book, and trying to connect them uh, with people and produce things that can be a valuable resource for the church and for sharing in the wider world. That is amazing. That's fantastic. And you've been there for how long? I've worked in this office for 15 years, so wow. it's starting to be a, a tour of duty. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. oh, that's awesome, Nathan. Well, as we go and um, as we as we dive into our topic, because I know that today's topic is one that you are extremely passionate about and, and also qualified in, so we'll get to know even more about sort of the heartbeat behind Nathan Brown. But before we go into that, I wanted to do one more thing. And that is yeah. in every podcast episode, I always ask a ridiculous question um, mm-hmm. or maybe they're not <laughs> so ridiculous, but I try, you know, something, something lighthearted. Um, so look, I, I don't know if this is necessarily reliable because I read this article on, on mirror, uh, mirror.co.uk and, and I'm not sure about this mirror thing. It, it might be reliable, might not be, I don't know. Um, <laughs> but uh, either way, the topic of the article was, was about like robots are going to be commonplace in homes by the year. 2050 and Mm. um what caught my eye as well is that they're they're not only going to be commonplace in homes by 2050 we're talking about humanoid robots you know they can vacuum for you they can cook they can do all these things um Mm. but uh the article was actually saying that they're 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 going to come with their own set of android rights um which i thought was interesting (laughs) i i i don't know what that will look like but you know um but what i wanted to ask you was uh, if you had a humanoid robot in your house, 
Mm. What would you what would you buy one to do that you just absolutely hate doing? Yeah, that's a tough thing because probably the most repetitive and meaningful task that I do at our place is uh, picking up horse poo. <laughs> um, but I actually kind of find that pretty therapeutic and a good excuse to get outside, particularly nice. after a day of reading or a day in the office or whatever. Um, so I'm not sure I want to give up that. But on those days when it's muddy and it's raining and it's cold and it's not a lot of fun, uh, I think that would be a pretty useful thing to do. We have um, three horses that live at our place and uh, a relatively small uh, area of land, so it's just a regular task that needs to be done. And yeah. It's not always the most inspiring task. <laughs> <laughs> no, I hear you, man. So, hey, you know, keep your eye out for horse poo collecting robots. Um, it'll be Apparently at a you near can... you by 2050. You can actually buy kind of vacuum cleaner type, as in outdoor vacuum cleaner type things that okay. will do that job for you. But um, yeah, you probably that probably is a bigger investment than I'm prepared to make yeah. at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. Well, hey, like I said, if you wait till 2050, you know, you, yeah, might, uh, you, you know, you might be able to get yourself a, a humanoid robot, give him a name. Um, he yep. has his own set of rights that'll come with him. I think uh, you've got to be <laughs> you've got to be kind to them. You're not allowed to to be mean to them. Yeah, um, fair enough. So you know, why not? Um, <laughs> so <let's, laughs> yeah, I um I look forward to it. Cool. I Thank you too. for the heads up. I oh, absolutely, man. That's <laughs> assuming this article has any semblance of reliability. To it, so. <laughs> Indeed. Um, so let's let's dive into this topic, man. Should should Adventist local churches be involved in, in social justice? Now, before um we get to that particular question, I want yeah. to get your perspective, Nathan. Um, what is social justice? Yeah. Um, well, it's interesting. Social justice is one of those things that can mean all sorts of things to all sorts of different people. And when I'm talking about justice and have the opportunities to write about it and uh, speak about it in different places, I don't tend to use that language a whole lot. Um, I'm much more prone just to talk about the word justice. Mm. Uh, social justice, of course, is a subsection of justice. Uh, but justice in the biggest sense and in the biggest biblical sense really gets back to God in God's intention for how the world should be. And, you know, God created the world. He created all the relationships that we exist in and that when those relationships are healthy and working well, then we all have within creation everything that we need for human flourishing. And when those, cre when those relationships are broken, which we see narrated pretty clearly in the story of the fall of Adam and Eve, as it's described in uh, Genesis chapter 3, each of those relationships, relationship with God, relationship with ourselves, relationship with each other, and then relationship with the cre rest of creation are all kind of specifically mentioned as being broken and fallen. And so when we talk about biblical justice, we're basically, in the biggest sense, talking about the restoration as far as humanly possible of all of those relationships into how they ought to be how God intended them to be. And when those relationships are healthy, then society functions well, we function well in relation to each other. And uh, you know, there, we get to the point where that there won't be uh, disparity between opportunity, disparity between uh, economic disadvantage and prejudice and racism and so many of these other things that are the underlying causes of so much of what we look at when we talk about often things like poverty and social injustice and those, um, you know, probably where we go first to injustice. Mm. 
So it's remarkable often in our conversations about justice, we first start talking about injustice. But I think from the biblical perspective, we actually have this foundation of what justice is, which is how God intended for human beings to live well. And um, that when we follow God's intention, his, his oughtness to his creation, uh, when we come in harmony with that by submitting our lives to him, uh, we have the opportunity then to be agents of working for, uh, agents of reversal, working for greater justice and beauty and goodness in the world. Wow. That was so cool, Nathan. <laughs> no, seriously, man. <laughs> that was, I mean, my, I was trying really, really hard to focus on every word you were saying, not because I was distracted, mm. but because there was so much depth in so every it. sentence. <laughs> and so when we talk about social justice, yeah. we have, um, you know, that's kind of the right ordering of society so yeah. that everybody gets a chance. But we could also talk about things like racial justice and economic justice and uh, gender justice and creation justice or environmental justice and international justice and so many of other of these kinds of justices yeah. um, that make up this holistic concept of the bigger picture of what justice should be. Yeah. Well, let me, let me dive in there really quick because... Mm. Look, I absolutely love your answer. Like it's it's I think the thing that really blows me away is how this entire perspective of justice that you've given us is rooted in how God created the world. It's it's rooted in relationship, really. Like that's the yeah. I think the main theme that I heard coming out like when we are in a right relationship with him with one another and with the world around us, justice is a natural thing that flows out of that whereas when we're not in a right relationship, then sort of injustice occurs as a result of the broken relationship. Yeah. Um, and, and that's, you know, I, I love that answer because it gives us, it gives us a, a foundation for justice that, you know, for pursuing justice that is not just, hey, the culture is talking about this right now. Let's, let's be cool and, and be part of the trend. But yeah. it's, you're saying, no, this is deeply theologically rooted in who we are as Jesus followers. Yeah, and who we under, how we understand God and what God is like. Ultimately, if we believe God is, God is a God of justice, then it comes down to, well, if we are called to be his people, created in his image, then we are to be people of justice. That's and, right. you know, there is this, and that's, I think what you've said is very significant because a lot of people dismiss justice as, particularly, you know, young people talking about justice. That's just what's trendy at the moment. And there's just this profound theological reality uh, behind the kind of justice that we are called to. And, and this is pretty significant too in how we address injustice because a lot of people, when they think about justice, their immediate thoughts go to charity. You know, if you see somebody hungry, we need to feed them. And that's important and valuable where it can be. Uh, but justice is taking that next step and saying, well, why are these people hungry? What are the broken relationships mm. that cause these people to be hungry? Not just today, but they'll be back for another meal tomorrow. Um, we can keep feeding them every day. Or can we actually begin to look at the broken relationships that are here, whether they're in society or whether they're between individual people or whatever that might be? And what could we do and contribute to healing some of those relationships and making a better environment a better society in which those people 
can not just be fed today, but that they can be restored to a better relationship to to others. Absolutely, that is that's powerful, man. Now, Nathan, you <clears throat> you've got a degree, a master's, if if I'm right. I uh, can correct hmm. me if I'm wrong on the very theme of justice from the Christian perspective. Yeah. Um, so I'm wondering because in what you're saying right now about you know this sort of the foundation for justice, this relational foundation, this building, you know, reconnecting these relate broken down relationships as a as a theological foundation, is that what has inspired you to pursue this degree, um, and and to be so passionate about the topic to this day? Uh, definitely, because to me it comes down to um, having something valuable, something meaningful, something deep to respond to the world that we see around us that has so much suffering and so much hurting and so much pain and so much injustice. Um, yeah, my conversions experience to, to recognizing the importance of justice for Christians and the church to have something meaningful to say to the world was when I was um, spending time at an orphanage in Cambodia 10, 15 years ago, and I just had this experience one Saturday evening where we were having worship with the people there and I was looking around and I couldn't understand the singing because it was in their local language. And I was looking around at the stories that were represented in that room. Everybody there had was either a survivor of the genocide that happened in uh, Cambodia in the 70s and 80s or that was the older people or the children were orphans and they had their own stories of you know, horror and tragedy and loss and injustice that they had survived, uh, but I was just totally broken by the collection of horror that was in that place. Mm. You know, the tragedy that was in that small group of people that was all collected there together. And, just, and I just had this moment where I said, my faith has to have a, a response to it. Mm. You know, my faith has to have something to, that meaningful to say. Uh, it doesn't have to have all the answers, but it needs to have a response. Um, to what I've what I'm experiencing right here, and if it doesn't, it really isn't worth much. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that began a long process of studying and journeying and getting involved in some of these kind of um, causes and projects. I've had the opportunities to travel in other places with Adra and other organisations to see some of the work they do to overcome poverty and uh, do development and give people greater opportunities in education and other ways. And then to, to actually say, well, I need to go deeper into this from a theological perspective. And that's where I had the opportunity to pursue the master's that you mentioned, which was, it's titled a master's of social justice, but actually um, was pretty much a theology of justice yeah. uh, with some practical and pastoral leadership aspects involved in it as well. Uh, and it's just something that over particularly the past 10 years, I've been doing a lot of work on and um, the more I get into it, the more I get convinced about how important it is for our credibility. Uh, I guess, firstly, for the sustainability of our own faith, but also for the credibility of our voice in the world and our presence in the world. And when it comes down to, to our understanding of God, because the world can grind us down in so many ways. And I mean just the tragedies, the disappointments, the sorrows, the injustices that we see and experience so much around us. And ultimately, this gets back to what Jesus said, that this is good news for the poor. Mm. And that, you know, the revelation of who God is, is good news for those who suffer injustice. And if it does, isn't that, then we're not doing it right. 
Absolutely, man. Absolutely. I could not agree with you more. There, there's, there's a lot of different things that you pointed out um, just in those last, in, in the last few moments um, mm. that I think, you know, I can, we can dig into uh, for, <laughs> for forever. <laughs> um, one of the things that you mentioned that I think is so key and then, and then I got a, a question that I want to um, poke around, play around with. But one mm -hmm. of the things that you mentioned that I think is so key is that justice, um, justice does not rise and fall with just donating some money to a charity. Yeah. You know, justice is much bigger than that. It's, it's about understanding, you know, what are the systemic issues that are, you know, the reasons behind why this problem exists to begin with and yeah. what can we actually do to heal the relationships and the system that is perpetuating this suffering for these people. Mm, yeah. um, and I think that's a really, really important thing to recognize because, you know, even myself, you know, growing up is sort of the assumption, oh, you know, uh, I think, you know, so long as I give uh, Adra a little donation, then uh, <laughs> I've paid my dues, you know. Um, yeah. But it's so much bigger than that. It's 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 like the old saying that you know you 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 give a man a fish, you feed him for a day, and you teach him how to fish, and you feed him for a lifetime. Yeah. Um, that you know, real justice isn't just about throwing some money. Although, please certainly donate. <laughs> you know, I'm not saying don't do yeah. that. Like, it's super important. It's super helpful, especially for the short term alleviation of suffering. But if we're really pursuing a long term vision, um, it's more. There's more involvement and there's more sacrifice on our part of figuring out what the systemic issues are and how to speak life into them, um, that I think we often ignore. And yeah, and also one of the things we need to look at is how we benefit from the injustice in our, in the society around us. Mm. You know, those of us who are in privileged positions, who are well off, who are, you know, live a lifestyle in some ways that are subsidized by the by the work of others. Yeah. Um, yeah. If you're a you, typical suburban consumer in in you know a western country such as australia our lives are subsidized by you know millions of working poor people around the world who you know spend their lives in basic poverty working to make the cheap things we buy from the shops mm. um and that can be seen pretty overwhelming at times and perhaps it should be um but we need to be to look at how we are complicit in the injustice of some of the systems you know, the economic systems, the political systems uh, that are the reality of the world that we live in and how we can live in alternative ways and how we can make better choices, that the choices that we make each day in what we buy or don't buy and what we, how we consume and how we relate to others have real impacts in the lives of other people that we might never meet. Uh, so, yeah, I agree that we should give. Um, and some great work is done by you know some of these development and justice agencies uh, that do work in some of these difficult places and you know they are not perfect but they're also doing things that are really really difficult and so just because there's occasional things that go wrong in those contexts doesn't mean that we shouldn't give we shouldn't use that as an excuse um, but it's more than just giving and so we're looking far beyond charity to yeah. this much deeper justice that we can recognize in the world around us, in our own lives, in our own relationships, and even at times in the church. Absolutely, man. And, you know, one of the questions that I encounter, and I, and I want to know, I want to know how you feel about this. Because, <laughs> like, I remember some, 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 like, maybe two years ago, just speaking into one of the points you were making earlier about how, you know, our, our very life is oftentimes... Um, benefiting from this impoverishment and suffering of others. 
Um, I remember seeing this documentary um, called The True Cost. Yep. Which was about, um, I'm sure you've seen it, about the fast fashion industry. And, mm-hmm. you know, it just really sort of points out how, you know, I can go to Kmart and get this really, really cheap stuff because, you know, someone working in absolutely appalling conditions 12 hours a day um, yeah. in, in in an Asian country somewhere has been making it for, you know, a few cents an hour. Yeah, uh, and so that enables me now to be able to go to the shop and, and get this. And you know, so for me, it was a really eye-opening experience. And you know, obviously, the the result of that is you start looking into how can I, um, you know, provide or or, or or be part of a solution for this. Yeah. But the challenge that I encountered, because one of the young ladies in our youth group, this was at a church that I worked in some years ago, was really passionate about this topic, and when she brought it up, the immediate sort of pushback was. Um, Two things that I observed, two things. So the first one was that many Adventists seem to already be carrying such a burden of guilt that they just can't be bothered with anything else. <laughs> yep. you know? So, you know, and, and that's that's one of the reactions I saw. And it, it comes from a misunderstanding of the gospel where people are already, yeah. you know, carrying this burden of guilt. So they're, they're already dealing with that. And so then you come along and say, oh, you know, um, our privilege in society is, 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 is built upon the systemic suffering of others. And, and yeah. people are just like, well, look, I just can't, you know, I already feel guilty about a hundred other things. I can't carry <laughs> another one. Um, so yeah. that's one. And then the other one that I observed was um, people who just simply throw their hands in the air and say, look, there's nothing I can do about it. So why worry about it? Like, you know, like yeah. I've got, I've got enough things to worry about. I'm, I'm just a normal Joe Schmo trying my best to make it through life. And if this is the way society is, you know, I can't really do anything. So really, in both cases, what I observed was frustration and anger at the very even mention of the topic. Um, mm. What are some healthy ways that we can interact with these things without people feeling like, you know, overwhelmed and, and just getting angry? You know, I don't know. My, my question is all botched up, but I think you know where I'm headed here. <laughs> well, I think, and Martin Luther King was really strong on the idea that oppression is oppression of everybody. And so when we live in an unjust system, we feel that pressure. And, um, you know, he said if we liberate one group of people, then probably we'll all feel a little bit more liberated. And um, I think that's perhaps some aspect of what you're talking about. We we all feel under so much pressure to produce, to consume, to perform, to be part of this bigger system that is oppressing everybody. Mm. And so when we have this, this sort of glimpse of God's intention for what human relationships should be and what our relationships to the wider world should be, then it's actually a breath of fresh air. Yeah. And we get, you know, even from a big picture Adventist perspective, we talk about a great controversy, you know, that there are these systems and powers and evil presence in the world that is seeking to oppress everybody. And that whether that's an economic system or a political system or, you know, whatever it might be, oppression is a tool of the devil. And when we, are, we step up to answer the call to do justice, the Bible's call to do justice that God repeats so many times throughout um, the Bible, we're actually becoming agents of reversal in the great controversy. Mm. And so... We might feel guilty, we might feel overwhelmed, and that's kind of part of the oppression of the whole mess. And so the call to justice is this call where the light starts to shine in and we can get a breath of fresh air and we recognize that this isn't how the world has to be. And we can get this vision of, you know, when we go back and study the 
the the right you know the teachings of Jesus from this perspective and how Jesus lived in a countercultural and you know way that was you know this message of preaching good news to the poor and setting free the oppressed and announcing liberty to the captives and you know giving eyesight to the blind and the mm. lame walk and everybody celebrates and this is a different you know this is the alternative kingdom of god that jesus came to pronounce that you know that society is turned upside down and we everyone is set free from from the fear from the guilt from the oppression from the injustice from the poverty all of those things are changed through jesus Amen. and yeah. so to me this is an inspiring call to actually live differently and so that we don't have to be a part of all of these other things that you know jesus constant thing is do not be afraid do not worry about your life and the things that you have to do um you know matthew six thirty three: seek first the kingdom of god and his justice which is just an equally good translation as righteousness and mm. all these other things will be added to you so when we live freely and uh, in a way that is liberating in a way that is you know pursues this vision of justice that god gives to the god has given to us uh, then we're living in harmony with his kingdom and where we are set free from the oppression that we're a part of even if we're even if we benefit to some degree from from the oppression that is in our world and the injustice that is in our world we are nonetheless part of an oppressive system and to be set free from an oppressive system is true liberty that is powerful man that's a really mm. really good way of thinking about it now as you're sharing that i'm thinking as well because because i'm kind of look um when it comes to the whole issue of justice social justice etc like i naturally lean toward you know really speaking life into these different areas um mm. but i'm playing a bit of the devil's advocate because i <laughs> i know so many people who lead the opposite way so let me give you another scenario and i want to sort of interact with this i want to just headed just just so you're aware um i want to i want to head toward maybe looking at the history of adventism and and social justice in a minute before yep. i do that um i want to i want to bring up another sort of pushback that i do sometimes encounter um and that is, you know, there, there's, there's people in the church who simply feel like, look, um, the church's job is to preach the gospel and so that Jesus can return and he'll fix all these problems. So mm -hmm. it's not our job to be involved in this stuff. Our job is to preach the gospel um, and then Jesus will return and fix all the problems, um, which is sort of like a... You know, we shouldn't waste our time with this is basically what what that what's being said there was being communicated. And this is used as a sort of rationale for ignoring social issues um, yeah. in the name of the gospel. How do you feel about that? How do you respond to that? Yeah. And this comes down to how you define gospel. Um, <laughs> yeah, and, and I find defined gospel by Jesus. And when I look at what Jesus taught and what Jesus did, then I see the gospel in action. Mm. and um that's that's the simple answer um it doesn't mean it's easy to live it out but that's the simple way of looking at it is that what was the ministry of jesus you could make the same argument about jesus if, if jesus was just coming to die on the cross what did he do for the previous three years that mattered mm. um well he actually spent time with people he uh healed people he taught people how to live in a way that was free as part of his alternative kingdom and you know, by a different set of values to the world around us. He confronted the people that were the cause of injustice 
you know, particularly the religious leaders. And that were some of the people that he had the, the harshest things to say against those that, you know, count out their, the tithe of the leaves of their herb plants, but fail to do the bigger things of justice, mercy and faithfulness. Mm. Uh, you know, Matthew 23, 23, uh, which, of course, is an echo of um, Micah 6, 8. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. And so there is this pattern um, to, throughout the Bible in a number of different places, this idea that, that if you really want genuine faithfulness, if you want what, what being a person of God looks like, then you are concerned with the people around you and you can't be unconcerned because God is concerned. Yes. Uh, you know, it's such, you know, it is, you know, the, the stats, and that's not the only way to read the Bible, but the stats point out about 2,100 verses that talk about God's concern with injustice and poverty uh, out of 31,000 verses. So one in every 15 verses of the Bible is pointing us back to those in need around us and the, to the, the call to do justice in the world as the way to be the faithful people of God. Wow. Uh, and of course, you know, we even, you know, even in our good Adventist tradition, we talk about, um, you know, getting back to this question of evangel evangelism or justice. Um, you know, the famous quote, Christ's method alone will, you know, reach the people, will be effective to reach people. You know, Jesus mingled with people who sought their good. He won their confidence. Um, or he healed their, he healed them. He won their confidence and then he bade them follow me. And so, it's not that he was doing it as part, sort of, part of some kind of evangelistic strategy. It wasn't a hook. It was mm. simply what the kingdom of God looks like yes. when, it, when it comes among us. Yes. And so, you know, it isn't, it isn't some kind of marketing plan or, you know, bait and switch kind of idea. It actually is the same thing. That when, when God's kingdom is present and when we're pronouncing that and announcing it and, you know, as Jesus said, announce that the kingdom of God has come near you, uh, then what we're doing in that moment is actually enacting the kingdom of God and inviting people to be part of that reality. Um, so that's, what, that's how these things fit together. They aren't you know, competing things. They aren't different parts of the process. They are the same thing. And that's what Jesus lived out. And if we follow Jesus as our example, then to me it makes a lot of sense. Oh man, dude, oh, man. you got dude, my heart rate going. That was, <laughs> wow, that was some really, really insightful. Like the way you explained that, had not thought of it that way before, but it's so true. Like this is the kingdom of God in action. This is what it looks like, you know? Yeah. And wow. All right. I want to dive into this next question um, hmm. <clears throat> because I want to just get a synopsis of, you know, from, from your knowledge, from your experience um, what, what is the history of Adventism and social justice? Or, or just to use the broader term of justice as a whole, what, what is the history that Adventism has in speaking life into that space? Yeah. Um, I mean, we have a pretty good history when you go back and look at the our early pioneers. They were involved in the world around them. They didn't have a choice because they didn't have much else to work with. Um, they were interacting with people who were non-Adventists all the time and they are engaged in the issues of the world in which they lived. And so, you know, in the northeastern United States, in the mid to the second half of the 19th century, you know, there was the Civil War, the lead up to the U.S. Civil War, issues of slavery and racism that were a part of that. Uh, they were very much outspoken in the abolitionist movement and some of the 
early Adventist leaders were active in the Underground Railroad, uh, which was helping escaping slaves uh, to get freely to Canada and away from slavery in the American South. Uh, even while they opposed the war itself, they were very much on the side of, you know, putting an end to slavery. And so we were a peace church, but that was for everybody's benefit that we were seeking. We weren't simply being apathetic. We were seeking freedom for the slaves, but we we're also saying, well, violent, you know, a violent conflict is not the ideal way to, to do that. Uh, and of course, early Adventists were also very much involved from a health perspective in uh, the temperance movements uh, and some of those other very much um, public campaigns that were happening as social things in that time and were leaders in it. Uh, and it wasn't just that we think alcohol is bad for us. It was that we see, and if you go and read a book such as Ministry of Healing and the damage that is done to people and particularly the poorest people by the abuse of alcohol and by, you know, some of these other things that were about predatory practices by people that were making money on these at the expense of the poorest of the poor. Mm. Uh, so we were very much involved in our societies in the early days. And one of my favorite quotes actually um, is a quote that A.G. Daniels, who was the longest serving president of the General Conference, um, actually he gave a eulogy at Ellen White's funeral and he kind of summed up her, um, her ministry. And it's quite an interesting speech if you go and find it and quite lengthy as well. But he gets to the point of talking about her concern for the social status of the human family. And, and he makes this statement basically trying to sum up her particular focus. He says this, slavery, the caste system, unjust racial prejudice, the oppression of the poor, the neglect of the unfortunate, these all are set forth as unchristian and a serious menace to the well-being of the human race and as evils which the Church of Christ is appointed by her Lord to overthrow. Wow. That's to me, is the language of revolution when you start yeah. talking about overthrowing things. <laughs> um, and so we get this idea and some of the things that Ellen White actually, you know, as part of the study that I've done, I looked at some of the things that Ellen White wrote in some of these directions and some of the things she wrote are still politically radical today. Mm. Um, you know, she actually made comments that writing in the, um, in the United States context that the families and the descendants of slave deserve reparations uh, for the service that they gave to the country that has never been properly paid for. Yeah. I mean, try getting that voted through anywhere. Mm. Um, in any of the countries that have, you know, a history of abusing uh, their indigenous or their, you know, people that are captive people, um, it just, you know, that's politically um, courageous today. Uh, and that was, you know, that was the kind of language that when you go looking in her writings that you can find and her reading of, you know, anything less, you know, she makes, makes some pretty amazing comments in different places about how anything less than concern for others is basically a false religion. And, you know, we've, as a church, have had these strong sensitivities to, um, you know, false religion and um, deceptions and all of those kind of things that we sometimes have warned people about. But she actually points to some of these things as mm. false religions, as deceptions that we can be drawn into. Yeah. Uh, and the other thing, and this was something that I'm fascinated by, and I haven't been able to fully, you know, verify the statement, but someone suggested to me that 
the most quoted verse, the most quoted chapter of the Bible in all of Ellen White's writings is Isaiah 58, which is a definition of what revival looks like, where you have the people uh, coming to God and saying, why haven't you listened to us? Why haven't you heard and responded to all our worship services and all our sacrifices and our fasting? And Jesus, uh, God, through speaking through Isaiah, um, says, well, this is the fast that I'm looking for, that you feed the hungry, that you set the oppressed free, that you uh, release the captives, that you um, care for others and that you make your society a just and different place. Mm. And, um, yeah, that is one of the recurring themes even in Ellen White's writings. And, of course, there's a link there um, to Sabbath-keeping at the end of Isaiah chapter 58, which is linked to Sabbath-keepers are the people that are called to um, that are called to be voices, be active against injustice in the world, and that is linked to what it means to actually keep Sabbath. And so we have this amazing heritage, uh, but we lost sight of it. You, that's and, uh, that's that's exactly where I was headed next, man. Because <laughs> <laughs> look, I know that there's still a strong, you know, Adra, you know, the the the, the yeah. you know the the influence of Adra and Asian aid. Like I know that there's still a strong presence of humanitarian justice within Adventism. But when I look at the local church, man, yeah. <clears throat> I, it's almost like the history that you've just described belongs to a different movement, you know, looking yeah. from the outside <laughs> in, because when you look at the local church, there's very little connection to anything related to justice for, for, for the least of these, as the Bible describes it. So, yeah, please go on. I want to know, like, how have we lost sight of this? Uh, the main yeah. question on this whole podcast was, should Adventist churches be involved in social justice? I, I think that question is answered, so I'm going to move on. <laughs> uh, we could have um, just said yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, how have we lost sight of this heritage of ours, and what can we do to recapture it? Yeah. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, it, there's a book um, Zach Plantick wrote called The Silent Church, and he actually traces how and why we lost sight of it. Uh, particularly over the course of the 20th century. And he looks at some of the theological underpinnings of why we were open to drifting away from this focus. He also looks at some of the you know, social realities that we were living in, the even philosophical shifts that were happening in society. And to some extent, uh, it was part of the modernist drift in Christianity as a whole. And you know, as a church, we had to decide, are we... Yeah, are we going to be a con continue to grow in our understandings and continue to engage in some of these things, or do we dig in the foundations and do we defend, you know, our fundamentals? And um, really, the drift has been over. Yeah, and we're talking basically a hundred years ago, uh, and perhaps we're starting to recover a little bit more of it uh, in in more recent decades. But that we were more focused on being right than being good. Mm. Uh, and of course, some from some Adventists, that won't make a lot of sense because there's a really strong focus on being good. But it's kind of a personal goodness, not, you know, it's us being right, not mm. that we are good for the world mm. and that we're good for those around us. And that, yeah, even, and I think this is a really strong case, even if we go back to the Sabbath commandment, that the Sabbath commandment is one that actually brings good to everybody else. And if there are Sabbath keepers in your town, your town will be a better place because we're concerned about, you know, the, the poor, the oppressed, 
the foreigners and strangers living among you, even the animals benefit from the Sabbath commandment. And so the Sabbath should be such a thing that always every week recalibrates us and brings us back to this different picture, this alternative reality. And you know, if you look at the bigger picture of Sabbath, there are, there are various um, authors that have even used the term Sabbath economics um, as a way of talking about the different way of living that we are called to. But over the um, 20th century, we kind of got lost into the fundamentalism that you know, if we have the right answer, then that's what our faith, that's what it looks like to be faithful. And, um, you know, my dad was a pastor in the Adventist church for many years. And a few years ago, he was reading something I wrote. And he simply said, you know, I, when I was at college, I got taught that if you had the right doctrines, you were right. And that was what it meant to be faithful. And, you know, for whatever reason, there, there seems to be a little bit of renewal and particularly perhaps in younger generations and it's an advantage that comes in seeing, you know, being more connected to the wider world and seeing more of, you know, even the opportunity to travel more. You see more of the um, the brokenness and the injustice of the world and you recognise that that our faith calls us to that. Yeah, you know, our faith doesn't just call us to to hang out with God and get all the right answers. Even in a moment as incredible as the transfiguration, ultimately Jesus said to the disciples, no, we're not going to build a church here and stay up here and worship forever. Our calling is to go back down the mountain mm. and to serve the people that are in need of healing and in need of you know, hearing the good news there. And so that's, you know, that's, I think that's the journey our church has been on. And I have some hope that we might be making some progress in, in getting back off our mountaintop and realizing <laughs> that, realizing that, you know, faithfulness happens in the valleys, not on the mountaintop. Wow, and I love um, that, man. and that's where we're called to be, and and it's on the streets, and it's in the in the homes, and it's in the places where there are people that are most in need of the good news to the poor, that are to, of being liberated, of being set free, that the gospel makes most sense because it is transformative and world changing in that way. Wow. You know, as you're sharing that, Nathan, um, it reminded me of a conversation I had a really long time ago. I actually wrote an article about it. It was a really mm -hmm. long time ago. I wouldn't even know where to find this article. <laughs> but um, it was about the whole, you know, Adventist view of the Sabbath as um, a seal mm. in, 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 in an apocalyptic, yep. you know, setting. This idea of the Sabbath being uh, this seal or or this you know playing a role in this whole seal of god mark of the beast um narrative and yeah. um <clears throat> and as i studied that because you know a person was asking me questions and i wanted to figure it out and you know i'm naturally like i'm a grace guy so i'm naturally inclined to <laughs> to be <laughs> like yeah it's baloney you know what i mean like that's sort of my natural inclination whenever we make more of the law than than the than the scriptures make of it but as I studied it, it actually hit me that the problem with the way in which we view, we view the, this this whole narrative of Sabbath and Sunday and, and, and sort of Revelation 13, etc., the, the problem with it isn't actually the Sabbath itself. It's what we've made, what we've turned the Sabbath into. Like we have yeah. stripped it of all of its social justice elements. Yeah. And we've made yeah. it about nothing more than just a religious 24-hour period. So almost an, almost an, an ascetic 24-hour yeah. period 
Um, and then we say this is going to be the main thing that we're going to be fighting over in the last days. And people are like, dude, that's ridiculous. But when, as you were describing, like when you understand that Sabbath is really, uh, it's, it's more than an archetype. But for the sake of our conversation, if you, you, it's an archetype for, for justice. Yeah. Right? It's, it's an archetype for human relationships. It's an archetype for, you know, this concept of humanitarian value and, and not, not just humans, but animals as well, because even the animals rested on, That's on Sabbath. So it's, it's, it's got this sort of, you know, this element of relationship to God and relationship to, to nature and relationship to man and even relationship to self because you're pausing yourself. Like all yeah. of the elements of justice in the original creation are embedded there. Um, and so when you look at it from that broad perspective and you see how it applies uh, in every area of life, which honestly, the best book I've seen on this topic wasn't even written by an Adventist. I forgot the author's name. It's titled Sabbath as Resistance. Yeah, um, uh, Walter Brueggemann. Yes, Walter Brueggemann, where he talks about Sabbath and he, uh, uh, you know, applies it to the issues of consumerism and you know all, yeah. all the different things we face in contemporary society. It's brilliant, but yeah. um, when you look at it that way, then it sort of makes sense. Like, okay, so the the final conflict isn't just about what day is the you know what how you read a calendar, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's about justice. It's a it's about yeah. the value of the human being. It's you know it's about so much more. Um, yeah. And it's yeah. even, and I think it's fascinating. And maybe if if you wanted to, you know, drag some present truth out of this, you could actually say, well, you know, one of the key things that makes Sabbath different is the reference to the stranger within our gates. Mm. And in a in a in a world in which you know so much is focused on refugees and building walls and keeping people out, an alternative way to live is to live by Sabbath, which is including and benefiting and bringing healing and help to those who are the strangers within our gates or the strangers at our gates even. Yeah. Um, you know, and so to me, that changes the whole argument about you know, asylum seekers and refugees and all of these kind of things that are such political hot issues in our world because we're called to live as Sabbath people. Yeah. And Sabbath people offer the rest of Sabbath to the strangers. Mm. And that's, you know, it's politically serious yeah. because that changes how we live and act in the world. It changes how we speak. It changes how we vote. It changes how we engage in the world. And, you know, we become people who speak up on these issues and practice the welcome of Sabbath and the rest for refugees. And, you know, even sanctuary, you know, you have these sanctuary movements that are about offering safe space to people and for people have spent so much time talking about sanctuary maybe that's what we need to talk about <laughs> yes yes i could not agree more man oh so true wow so nathan <clears throat> i want to i want to ask another question which is a bit of an elephant in the room i think <laughs> you've i think you've answered it already at least in part but yeah it's an elephant in the room so i want to i want to look it in the eye and 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 you know, <laughs> see if I can make it, it trumpet. Yeah, yeah, expose it for all it's worth. Um, now mm. here's 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 the question. Um, one of the concerns that I often find with with people in church when it comes to um, the church engaging social justice um, is that there's a there's a fear about the ideological foundations of contemporary social justice, particularly as it relates to the political left. Yeah. Um, 
So how do you feel about that? Like, is is the church engaging in social justice equivalent to the church becoming part of the political left? Um, how, how do we dialogue about this? How do we find ba balance in this? Well, that's why I think it's so important that we start, as we did this discussion, with a focus on what is biblical justice mm. and what is the Bible's call to do justice and what is the revelation of God that we see in justice being done in the world. Um, when we... You know, when God says, well, how do you want me to worship? You know, when people, you know, God is sort of asking the rhetorical question, how do I want you to worship? Well, this is what God requires to do justice, to love mercy and walk humbly with God. Um, we have, it, there is a sense in which our, uh, our, the biblical work of justice is different to the work of justice that is often thrown around in our society um, because it's actually deeper. Uh, there's, so, there's so much more to it. We have a much deeper engagement with justice mm. uh, because it is innate to who God is and the God we seek to serve and the calling that he has on our lives and the intention that he has for those who suffer um, and the good news that can go to the poor in the world. Um, so our understanding of justice is something so much bigger. Um, but that also means that we might find ourselves marching alongside somebody else who comes from a very different place. But we find people of goodwill, people who are seeking the same liberation, the same freedom, the same uh, uplift for others. Um, you know, and, and we are prepared to march alongside them, to work with them, to partner with them, because we recognize that what we're doing is good. Now that might mean we get ripped off and we get, might find ourselves in occasionally in awkward, uncomfortable situations, but you know, that's what we're called to do. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so when we have that, and I think that also becomes an opportunity and I've actually written a paper as part of the study um, course that I was doing over the past couple of years where I was looking at what does theology offer to the work of justice? Mm. Um, and to me, once again, going back to Martin Luther King is a pretty great example because, you know, he's a, he's a hero of, you know, the civil rights movement, of, you know, justice seekers of all different kinds. Uh, but the depth of theology that was behind what he did is remarkable when you actually go back and read uh, his sermons, his books. Um, there's, there's a whole lot more to it. And uh, I, I'm fascinated by... Um, when he was working in Birmingham, um, in Alabama, he was, um, yeah, he wrote his book uh, or he wrote his letter from a Birmingham city jail. Um, but there's a whole book that he built around that and that, that's the centerpiece of the book. Uh, and it sets out how he was setting up the people that were marching with him and that were joining in the protest that he was leading. And they had the commitment cards that they had to sign before they would be allowed to march that included things like each day I will study the stories and life of Jesus and be and seek to follow him. Mm -hmm. And so the ability that he and his supporters had to respond non-violently and to stand up against the, you know, the racism and the prejudice and the uh, segregation that was the reality of their lives was based in their understanding of Jesus and their understanding of God's intention for the world and the value of human life. And so when 
we we have this incredible resource that we can offer to others now sometimes that might be in the way that we can actually it may even be an opportunity for evangelism to use that kind of language um, to share that resource that we have for doing good in the world and for seeking to uplift others but it may simply be that we as christians have that extra depth and stability to what we're able to do that we can bring that to these good causes in the world and these these worthy projects um yeah that we can be you know resilient that we have an extra that we have a a depth behind what we do that that is really transformative both for us and for others and for our world and uh, i believe that's what god it's an opportunity that god calls us to uh, in our time and our place that is awesome man and you know as you're explaining this it, it reminds me as well of uh the previous interview that i had with uh shelly Poole, um where we talked about yep. evangelism in a post-christian secular context and um and one of the things uh that we discussed is that when we look at the world around us today, um, particularly with with postmodernism, um, you look at you look at movements like social justice, and you realize that um, it postmodernism and social justice are not actually very compatible with one another. Uh, the sort of cynical view of of reality, the the denial of you know moral absolutes, um, they don't give a strong foundation and yet there's still this overwhelming push and that's sort of where we, where we got into the whole emergence of the metamodern ideal which is trying to find a more stable foundation for these things um, mm-hmm. in, in the culture now but as, as Jesus followers as, as Bible believing Christians what you're saying is we've got a foundation that is rooted not just in an ideology or a trend but in the very character of the god that we seek to worship and so it behooves us to be reflective of that character not just in what we're saying from a pulpit but in how we're living how we're voting how we're interacting with people in everyday life yeah yeah, yeah. and i i would think again if we go back and look at uh our, our adventist pioneers and you know ellen white was addressing you know great crowds at temperance rallies and these kind of things where she was the ad- only Adventist in the room of 5,000 people. Mm. Um, but what an opportunity to be a voice for goodness there and the opportunity that she had to speak into those places where she would never have been invited to speak except for the credibility that she had as an advocate. Absolutely. And as someone someone that had, had something to say in this place. Yeah. And so... Uh, to me, I see that there's so much opportunity. And I even, I mean, that's something that I think, you know, we often will talk about generationally in these kind of things, that younger people are much more um, attuned perhaps to some of these, um, you know, causes, some of these issues, some of these questions. Uh, I think it's a really significant opportunity we have for young people, even within the church, who may get the justice thing. You know, because of the world that they live in, because of their opportunities they've had to travel, because of their education, because of their connectedness. But to actually encourage them to see that as so much a core part of what it means to be faithful to God in our world. Um, I think there's a real opportunity that we haven't fully pursued there as a way of connecting this impulse to 
you know, we, we need to respond to people who are hurting, to respond to people who are in need, uh, respond to injustice in the world, and to actually say, well, when you're doing that, you're walking in, you know, the intention of God for, for creation. Yeah. And, the, you know, how much, more, how much closer to God can you be than that? Uh, in in living in a practical practical sense in the world, that's powerful, man. That's powerful. Well, Nathan, I want to I want to I want to explore one more question. Yeah. And I think uh, if you uh, correct me if I'm wrong, because what I want to do now is I want to just as as we as we wrap up, I want to visit um, or touch on the local church and how. You know, mm. the practical ways in like. which yeah. Yeah, we can begin to engage this. Now, before we started recording, you mentioned to me that you've got a book coming out for the least of these. And there's also yeah. going to be a Sabbath school quarterly that particularly deals with the topic of, of justice. Um, yeah. And and so that's coming up, right? That's coming up soon. And all our local churches are going to be going through this quarterly and they're going to have the opportunity to purchase your book as a companion to this quarterly as well. Yeah. How can we take advantage of that to make a difference in our local churches and start doing justice as, as God asks us to do? Yeah, well, certainly this is an opportunity. It's the third quarter of this year, so from June, from July to September, July, August, September, um, a 13-week Bible study that um, churches around the world will be um, being a part of. And I've had the opportunity to work with ADRA, on an international level as far as doing some of the writing for the quarterly and then to write the companion book for the least of these. Um, so I'm pretty excited about that and the opportunity that that comes um, to for us all to stop and think about this a little bit. Um, personally, for myself, even the process of writing these things has been such a, a faith-growing experience and something that makes me more excited about you know, being someone who seeks to follow Jesus in the world today uh, and what, what that calling is about and the opportunity that is to, to actually make a difference and to matter in the world around us. Mm. Uh, so, so I'm excited about that opportunity that we have as a church to focus on that. Um, and, and perhaps it's a reflection of a gap in our Adventist thinking that we believe that this is the first time this kind of topic has been addressed in the Sabbath School quarterly. Um, so, you know, perhaps that's a significant moment where we can, we can uh, engage with some of these ideas a bit deeper. And, and, of course, it begins with the Bible study, you know, going back and reading some of those Bible verses and recognizing what a dominant feature this is of, of the Bible, of what God intends for his people and, you know, so much of even what we believe about it, things like the Sabbath and worship and the gospel and how they are linked inextricably with the call to do justice in the world. So I, I think that's a pretty significant thing. Yeah, um, absolutely. But it's got to land in a practical way at a local church near you. It can't just be a set of nice ideas mm. um, because, you know, that's the, that's the next way we can be apathetic is think that we've actually done justice in the world because we've done a Bible study about it. <laughs> uh, that's always a risk that we, that we face. Uh, so I would um, argue that or, or urge that the first thing is to just look around your community and do some listening. You know, what are the needs in your place? Um, and sometimes that requires a bit of work because the, the significant justice issues in the, 
in your local community may actually have a bit of a, you know, may not be as, as obvious as we think they might be. But there are a lot of organisations within your community, whatever community that is, that are working on these issues. It might be a local council, it might be other uh, agencies that are working uh, in that community already, and they're a great resource because they always are up for volunteers Mm. And and they are the ones with experience and they are the ones that recognise needs and gaps in who's being looked after and who's not. Um, and and I would suggest that the first thing to happen would be to partner with uh, organisations or groups or people that are already working in your local community. And by doing that, you don't have to start a competing soup kitchen next door to somebody if that's a need in your community. Mm. Go and volunteer at the local soup kitchen if that's... You know, if that's the kind of thing that you're working on, um, because often those places are first points of contact, but then they have other places that are ongoing contact with those people and are opportunities that some of the deeper issues can be addressed and relationships rebuilt and, and lives rebuilt in that way. And as you get involved in those places, then you get to know uh, a lot of different people in your community, and that's a great way to start. And you start to hear the stories, you start to recognise the needs and you start to say, hey, this is something we could contribute here uniquely. Um, I also think that we should be, we, we need to learn more to be a voice in our community, to speak in positive ways, uh, particularly on behalf of those whose voices are not often heard or listened to. Uh, and that might involve, you know, getting involved in lobbying campaigns or advocacy uh, I've just uh, in the last few months been working with ADRA uh, International on developing a, a an advocacy policy, and wow. ADRA is working on that in a in a big picture, and they've just recently launched their um, you know worldwide uh, petition to for to get kids into school, you know, so that every child around the world has the opportunity to go to school, and they're seeking to collect a million uh, signatures on that petition over the next year or so and then to present that to governments and to world leaders and to say hey we've raised this big voice we want you to prioritize this and to make this a bigger thing so you know it can be as as close as you know somebody down the corner from your church uh to having a voice on a global level uh, but i also think that churches have opportunities to be voices to their local member of parliament um to the local council on issues you know, particularly, again, on behalf of or, or speaking with people who aren't being listened to, people that are victims of injustice, that are, you know, that are struggling uh, because of some policy. And, you know, over the past um, year or so, I've done a lot of work and uh, writing and speaking in relation to Australia's policy on asylum seekers. Mm. Um, you know, that's been a blight on our political and social life in Australia for for the last 15 or more years. And, um, you know, some of the campaigns like getting kids off Nauru and, you know, seeking, you know, medical treatment, proper medical treatment for the people that we've held in indefinite detention uh, for so long. Um, so we need to be alert to some of these these things. And I think as we, as we do that, we find other, the more we get involved, the more we uh, step, take a step, then with the more opportunities we see and, and of course, we need we we should never forget that we also uh, have an opportunity to to be advocates for people in, in on their behalf by praying for people and praying for issues in our in our nation and in our country, um, you know, in our local community. 
um, we believe that that matters. And so, you know, if you want to um, have an opportunity to to step up your prayer life, simply read through the local paper and pray about it as you go. When you see problems in your community, pray for those. And as you do that and focus on them and as, as, God, as you interact with God about those issues, there are it's very likely that there'll be opportunities that come for you to serve and respond in practical ways. So awesome. there's so many places to start and so many places to go with it. Uh, but it begins by listening. Yeah. And uh, I think that's such an, such a significant thing. Wow. Nathan, I think that is an awesome place uh, to, to conclude for today, but there's actually, before we go, um, there is actually one more question and this is uh, more more to do with you, Nathan. Uh, people are listening to this podcast and it's the first time they've heard you and they're like, I love this Nathan guy, he's so cool. Um, two things, Thanks, number Rob. one, <laughs> you've, you've written several books, which would you say is maybe the first one? Hey, go check this one out, I think you'll like this one. And secondly, yeah. Can they get in touch with you online somehow, whether through social media, email, whatever it might be? Yeah, um, I'm pretty findable. Uh, but firstly, um, yeah, so the book thing, I have um, the for the least of these is coming out within the next couple of months. So look out for that one. Uh, and it particularly is addressing, you know, what we've been talking about today. I also uh, edited a collection of essays a few years ago uh, called Do Justice. Uh, co-edited with Joanna Darby. And um, that's a collection from Adventist church leaders and pastors and academics from around the world, um, about 28 chapters or something like that, looking at different aspects of the call to do justice. Uh, so that's worth checking out. And I've got a brand new book that um, called Of Falafels and Following Jesus, which is a little bit of a different style um, of book. It um, is focused on... Well, it tells the story of a, a trip through Jordan, Israel, and the Palestinian territories, following the stories of Jesus and what you learn along the way, and some of the strange things that you encounter along the way as well. <laughs> um, and that's that's just brand new. So look out for that in the, in an Adventist or other Christian bookstore near you. Um, so that's pretty exciting. If people want to find me, uh, you can find me on Facebook pretty easily. Except there's far too many Nathan Browns in the world. Um, so you need to make sure you're finding the right one. Um, also, um, I work at Science Publishing, so my email address is simply nathanbrown at sciencepublishing.com.au and all those words are run together unless there's a dot between them. Awesome, awesome. I'm just writing it down because I will put this in the podcast um, notes as well. And cool. um, yeah, and, and since you're open for people to find you on Facebook, I can include your, your handle there as well. Uh, okay. So that they don't end up finding a native town <laughs> in Alaska somewhere uh, who happens well, to even, not be you. So. There's even a few other Nathan Browns that are authors. So, oh, nice. Know, <laughs> it's a problem of having a common name. <laughs> That's right, yeah. <laughs> well, Thank Nathan, you. thank you so much for taking the time to have this uh, chat with me today. I really appreciate it, man. I've learned a lot. I've been inspired. And, uh, and I'm leaving this conversation with just a renewed sense of passion and urgency for the theme of justice, biblical justice and social justice in our world today. And I want to challenge each of you listening. Um, guys, the Sabbath School Quarterly is coming up. Make sure you dig into that and get Nathan's company and book um, to the least of these. And look for ways in which you can redesign your local Adventist church to make a difference in its community and speak life into the people around you who are suffering. I'll catch you guys next week. Take care and God bless. 
Thank you for listening to this week's latest episode of the Story Church Project podcast. I hope you were blessed. If you haven't yet had a chance, I want to invite you to head over to thestorychurchproject.com and subscribe to the newsletter. Not only will you get the latest updates every week, but I'm also going to send you a free gift straight to your inbox. You don't want to miss it. I'll catch you on the next one.